Hello, and thank you for listening to this Fun Board Council podcast. This is a 15-minute excerpt of our longer podcasts, and the full podcasts are available exclusively to Fun Board Council members via their member portal. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more about membership, please do contact us via our website at funboards.org. In the meantime, happy listening. Hello and welcome. Uh, this is a session that is going to be focused on the investment trust sector of our business. We tend not to hear too much about it within the funds business, but in actual fact, the first investment trust was set up over 150 years ago. A lot of you might know that, but what you possibly might not know is there are 23 others that have had a history going back at least 100 years, if not more. It's a sector that has been an important part of financial services, and we're going to talk about it today from the point of view of governance and the implications for fund boards, and are there any lessons that we can take away from directors who sit on these trust boards? To help me navigate some of these very interesting questions, I hope, are three experts. I'm not going to suggest they have 150 years of experience between them, but let's just put it that they've got a lot of experience between the three of them. Before we get to meet them, I'll just make one other quick point, and that focuses around the fact that independent directors on investment trusts tend to be in the majority, if not all of them, unlike with fund boards, where we tend to have them one or two or three or two or three in most cases. So let's meet our panel of experts. I can see Nick on the left. Nick uh, Pink, welcome. Hello. Claire. Claire's one of the oldest FBC members. Welcome back, Claire. And Kate. Kate, welcome to this meeting. All three of you sit on boards of investment trusts. Two of you also have experience on fund boards, so we're going to hopefully get the benefit of that experience. One of the key themes on fund boards is the role of the client, and part of the reason why independent directors have been parachuted onto fund boards is to be the guardians or the champions of the client or the end client. So, Kate, can I start with you and ask you to reflect a little bit about, from an investment trust standpoint, how do you address the issue of the client? To what extent does the board and the directors on the board have oversight of the client? And what are some of the issues that you've had to deal with there? Well, I think the board's primary role is to represent the interest of the shareholders. I mean, that, that is at the heart of what we do. I think the interesting thing for investment trust directors is that you have many levers with which to do that. And we can talk a bit later about the um, assessment of value process, which is not dissimilar from the way that as an investment trust board director, you're required to annually reappoint the manager. And in doing that, you obviously look at costs, you look at performance, you look at other aspects of what they do, which include things like sales and marketing and all of the support, if you like, that they bring to you as a normally fully independent board. So you have nobody other than yourselves to represent those interests. I think the other thing that is quite interesting that, of course, you can get involved in corporate finance activities. So you may join the board before an IPO of a new investment trust. You may, while you're on that board, be subject to some sort of corporate action. You might want to issue more shares. You might do a number of different things. And of course, on a day to day basis, because you're traded and you're a closed end company, you're managing the discount. You're not obviously as a board member managing it daily, but you do have to have structures in place whereby you manage the discount or premium to net asset value. And that's not an issue that you see in the unit trust mutual fund world, because of course everything trades at or around net asset value. So it's a similar role, but there are some very distinct differences that I see with it. 
Thank you for that, Kate. We'll come to this point, I'm sure. It's, a, it's a, certainly an important one around assessment of value. Whilst I was prepping for this meeting, I came across a statistic, which I must confess took me a little bit by surprise. Apparently, there were 32 boards of investment trusts over the last period of time, I'm presuming over the last year or so, that actually negotiated lower fees. Uh, Nick, did you want to come in on that and sort of give us a little bit of your experience on how that might work? Well, I think that um, investment trusts have have the same annual requirement as a fund board to look at value. Um, the management engagement committee will look at does the fee that you're paying the manager represent value for shareholders every year? And I think the assessment of value reports that have been done in the fund board sector are a really useful input because you're comparing yourself to your investment trust competitors to passive uh, if it's relevant and to the open sector. And so I think some of the transparency in assessment of value reports is really useful. And also I, I actually really like the structure. I think aspects of the AOV pillars, things like economies of scale, if you're looking at something like a tiered fee, some of the information that the managers have provided is, is really good. So I think it is definitely part of the debate in a trust board. And as you say, I, I came across exactly the same statistic. I think the three-year run rate is of 400 investment trusts, excluding the VCT sector, I think it's 50, 40, and 30 fee changes. And so, you, you know, you're talking of almost 10% of the sector's fees changing annually recently. And so that's been a, a very dynamic process. And I think in certain cases, if that is unusual given recent trends, but we've seen one or two cases where managers have been asking for increased fees, in that situation, if there's shareholder feedback that they may not be comfortable, then, then those are actually going to EGMs for a vote. And so that dynamic that Kate touched on of how important the shareholder is, is, is ever present. Does the fee represent value for shareholders? Thanks, Nick. And, and finally, Claire, just on the point of the client. Now, you've obviously had the good fortune of sitting on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, on a fund board as well as a listed uh, trust board. And, and your previous background also had a lot to do with, with clients. Just reflect for us a little bit about the differences, if you will, between your role as an investment trust director and the lens that you might view the client relationship with, and then that as a fund board, a non-exec. So I guess the, the key difference is with an investment trust, the shareholder is the client. And with a fund board, the shareholder is not the client. The client is very, very different and separate. And therefore, as a director of an investment trust, you are really focused on what is best for your shareholders who are your clients as well. They are the kind of primary driver behind what you do. On a fund board, you are balancing your kind of roles and responsibilities under the Companies Act, taking into account the need to kind of act in the best interests of members as a whole. That includes the shareholders and it includes the clients. But of course, it doesn't necessarily mean if you've got one decision that would be for the benefit of the shareholders, it's not necessarily for the benefit of the clients. So there's a bit more of a balancing act, I would say with a, um, an authorised fund manager role uh, as opposed to an investment trust role. Fascinating. I have a funny feeling we might come back and touch on that topic again before the end of this uh, conversation. I'd like to move on to another topic now, and that's one that's very germane and relevant today within the fund board world, and that's about the level of independence on fund boards. Now, within the investment trust world, you don't really have that problem because, as I understand it, the vast majority of boards are, are, are either, either entirely non-exec or 
pretty much non-exec. So Claire, will you start us off here? What's the difference between your experience in board meetings, for example? Let's just take a really simple case where you're sitting on a Monday where you're in your two of six or seven and on a Thursday you're potentially five or five. Is there a big difference in the way it works? Yes, I think there is. So um, if I look at the, the two boards I'm on, so the authorised fund manager board is six executives and two non-executives, which I think is fairly standard. And then in the investment trust world, I, I um, sit on a board which is uh, an investment trust that actually has an operating business within it. So it's slightly different to your standard investment trust. Uh, the investment portfolio represents about 83% of the trust and then the operating business represents about 17% of the net asset value. So we have executives that sit on the board. There are two executives and five non-executives on that board. However, the entire board is independent of the asset manager. So the asset manager is, is Janice Henderson and they are appointed uh, effectively as a service provider to the trust to manage the investment portfolio. And so when we're looking at investment performance, anything to do with the service that's delivered by the investment manager, you could say that the entirety of that board is independent from the investment manager, which is very different from the AFM board, where 75% of the board works for the asset manager and 25% doesn't. So the, the main difference I find is that when um, the investment manager is coming to talk to the board of the investment trust, everyone's hearing the reports at the same time. We're reading the report at the same time. We're hearing everything at the same time. For the fund board, it's quite different because the executives, obviously, in various governance forums, hear different reports from different people uh, across their business. And by the time it gets to the fund board, there is a chance they've heard the report delivered maybe once, twice, even three times in different forums. So that means that it kind of it changes the dynamic of the board meeting, I think, so that it tends to be at the uh, fund board meeting that the non-executives are asking more questions, whereas uh, in the investment trust world, everyone's hearing it for the same times and asking questions at the same time. Yeah, I can't tell you what an important point that is, uh, Claire, because that's possibly through some of the board effectiveness work we're doing, that comes out as possibly one of the biggest and most important issues around how do you navigate and manage the relationship between the non-executive directors and the and those who work for the organization. Uh, now, Kate, you've got the added responsibility, I think, if memory serves, you, you, you chair one of your investment trust boards I and do. you're an independent director on a fund board. Is, is Claire's experience similar to what you've had uh, or slightly different? I think it's I think it's very similar, and I think she makes a very good point about this, the the sequence of events that lead up to an AFM board meeting as opposed to a, an investment trust board meeting. I think the interesting thing is that for most fund managers are on a journey in terms of having those new non-exec directors, and I think as we go forward over the next five, ten years, that experience is going to change dramatically as they get more used to having external directors. If, by way of comparison, in places like Ireland and Luxembourg, this has been quite common for, for quite some time. And so groups that have companies there understand it probably better, I would suggest, than those that have never had external directors within their forum before. Um, I don't think being chairman of an investment trust particularly changes the experience. I think it's obviously more work. I think ultimately your interface with the fund manager, interestingly, is much 
more detailed than it would be if you were just a director, because inevitably you're having to deal with issues in between board meetings in a way that most directors don't necessarily have to. But I think it's a very similar role to being a non-executive director without the chairman responsibilities. I enjoy being chairman and I think it's interesting because you do get that extra engagement, whether it's on sales and marketing or whether it's actually sometimes facing up to the shareholders yourself. And that is a great learning experience and always very interesting, I find. I always come away from it having learned something. Thank you, Kate. Nick, when we were chatting pre- prior to this meeting, you oh, last week, you said to me that you had to go to an AGM or you were pre- or you were prepping for one. What do you believe is the state of governance, the quality of governance within the investment trust world? Given they've been going as long as they have, they've got largely non-execs on the board. Um, would you sort of rate it as in sort of rude good health, or are there issues that you think that might need to be dealt with yet? Well, I think it's always a difficult uh, process to assess that objectively. I think that one of the interesting features that Kate touched on it is, in a way, there is a measure of governance, which is your share price. And you're always, as a board director, looking at the discount to an AV and asking yourself why it's like that or premium. So um, over the last 10 years, the discount on trust has reduced. There are lots of other factors. Uh, linked to that. So if you took that as one measure, then one could argue that the health is is, is improving. Um, and there's no doubt that there's a huge amount of scrutiny on it increasing. So we've seen a tide of regulation, the most recent case with the white paper on board governance in the last few weeks. The shareholders are much more engaged uh, with their stewardship activities. So several investment trust shareholders will have corporate governance guidelines and then there's a huge amount of daily commentary from things like the independent brokers talking about governance issues. I think the three outstanding areas I'd touch on would be that there is still a tale of smaller investment trusts trading at wider discounts typically. On the other hand, there's a very effective clearing mechanism through tenders, buybacks, liquidations, continuation votes to deal with that. So I thought it was very, very interesting that I think 10% of the trust sector has got a continuation vote in 2021. So chance for shareholders to say whether they want the trust to continue or not. Uh, I think second issue is diversity. I thought it was very interesting that the FCA, uh, there was a speech recently talking about how cognitive diversity, gender diversity, ethnicity are going to be a focus for the FCA. I think that is still an area where more needs to be done. And I think the, the the third area is obviously what the government thinks. And so this white paper that's just come out for listed boards, talking about trust in listed boards, they're focusing on greater scrutiny around audit, internal controls, show that the government wants uh, governance to improve even further. So I think those are the three key areas. Mm, thank you. Um, there's a lot there, Nick, but I, there is one outstanding question that I do have. And I, I wonder, Kate, if I might come back to you on that. We hope you enjoyed that uh, 15 minute excerpt. If you did and you'd like to find out more about how you can access the full recording uh, or about FBC membership in general, please contact us via our website at funboards.org.